Hello everyone and welcome back to the Blaze Experience once again. You are joining us for a big episode today. Today is episode number 50. And it, it's great that we've actually made it to 50 and I really appreciate everyone that's been with us in this journey. You know, back in March when I started this, uh, I didn't think I'd be getting to 50 this fast, but you know, I actually upped our episode count to two a week and you know, we just kept trucking along and here we are at number 50. So it's definitely a great milestone and I'm really proud of that milestone. And uh, if you listened to the last episode, I did mention a contest, which I'll re-mention real quick. So to celebrate our 50th episode, I am doing a giveaway. I'm going to give away a code for the Daybreak DLC for State of Decay 2 and the Independence Pack for State of Decay 2 as well. So one winner will win both of those codes. And basically to enter that, all you have to do is give me a review on iTunes. You can follow me on Twitter or retweet any uh, podcast tweets on Twitter. Or you can subscribe on YouTube or join the Discord. So those are the main ways you can do that and you can be entered. So I will uh, draw the winner for that at the end of the month. So that'll run to the end of the month. In addition, we do have a couple other news items. Our next stream will likely be on Tuesday before noon. And that's going to be uh, next week. I also will probably be doing a celebration stream tonight when this releases. It's going to release on a Saturday. So I'll mention that I'll probably be doing a celebration stream tonight to celebrate the Z Hunter pack. We'll get into that a little bit later. But that's the new pack that's releasing for State of Decay 2. And then our next podcast, I will mention today that next Wednesday we won't have a podcast. Um, every month I do one week of the month that I kind of have Wednesday off. So... That will be the Wednesday that I don't do a podcast. So we will resume the Wednesday podcast on 1128. And basically the next episode you're going to hear after this one is going to be next Saturday. So a week from today will be another State of the K2 podcast. So we're going to have a break of um, a week, basically. But without further ado, that's our news items for today. So we do have a very special guest with us today for episode 50. It's someone that actually is at Undead Labs. Today, we have my former Undead Trials partner and also a programmer at Undead Labs. Please welcome to the podcast, Jurgen. How are you, Jurgen? Hi, I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm doing pretty good, and thank you for joining me today. I'm glad to be here. We definitely had a lot of fun in Undead Trials, and I'm glad you could join me for this, too. Yeah, I, uh, we could have uh, maybe done a little better, but now that I have some more practice, maybe we have to try it again sometime. Yeah, I'd love to. I think we will do a lot better, because, I mean, now that you have those minefields, you know, that, that's going to make all the difference for us. So. <laughs> Absolutely. And we also did uh, charity streams for Extra Life, too, and that went really well, and I'm really happy with what happened. We went, I think we earned like $2,600 or something like that, so that's amazing. Yeah, it was a lot of participation from, you know, all community members and from employees at Undead Labs, and I was really happy to see uh, people come together, you know, put in the time to uh, contribute and fundraising all that money for absolutely and if anyone still wants to donate i believe you can still donate till the end of the year so i will still have the donation link in the show notes so you can still donate but i think in just the week we were running events we uh earned that in just about a week so that's pretty good for just about a week and hopefully you know some more people earn more so your early career kind of what kind of games did you like as a kid you know what kind of games kind of got you into gaming i think the first games that i put a lot of time into were the RTS genre of things, and so I have fond memories of playing um, Settlers 1 and 2, playing Monkey Island uh, on the Amiga, the first kind of serious amount of gameplay I did was on an Amiga, and uh, Dune 2 uh, is one of the 
games that really have stuck with me uh, through the ages. Um, also, Doom uh, that I played with my brother. We had a serial link kind of connection between computers uh, in our in our attic, and uh, he would. <laughs> my brother um, he knew of, of secret places in the Doom maps where you could look out but not in there were these one way walls and uh, oh, for the longest time he would yeah and he would hide there and he wouldn't uh, he wouldn't tell me uh, how to get in there because you had to like find a secret wall to get up there and so for the <laughs> longest time he wouldn't tell me how to do it um, it, was, uh, it was brutal but I uh, yeah I, I think I, I played a lot of different things you know there was also kind of JRPGs um, Suikoden 2 and, and Secret of Mana those kinds of games it's been a it's been a pretty long, like pretty broad uh, selection of games that brought me to that. But I think the first moment I had where I was like, you know, thought of game development as a career was when I played uh, Half Life One. I think a lot of people had that too. But um, it was it was such a powerful kind of experience. Like I I was scared out of my mind playing that game. I was pretty, you know, pretty young and uh, sitting home alone in the dark and uh, just waiting for, like, head crabs to come jumping out at you. Uh, it was a pretty it was a pretty terrifying moment, and I think that's kind of when it crystallized for me uh, that, you know, some people are making these games and um, it's having this kind of profound emotional impact on me as a player, you know, like, that sounds amazing, like, being able to Absolutely. do that. Uh, so that's the thing. Where yeah, I'm definitely someone that's susceptible to like those kind of jump scare things. I mean, I do like a lot of like scary movies and things like that, but I'm not really scared by the movie itself. But I'm definitely susceptible to the jump scare. You know, anything that jumps out at me, like whoa, you know, <laughs> that definitely yeah, gets I mean, me. And it's interesting because I'm not a big fan of jump scares in general. Like I, um, when it comes to like movies and things like that, I think I'd rather just not watch it if it's going to have a lot of jump scares in. I just, it, it isn't like fun and enjoyable feeling for me, but for some reason, the, the kind of, uh, I think it was a lot of tension in playing Half-Life 1, where it's a lot of anticipation of what's going to happen, um, and, you know, there are some jump scares in there, but it was, it was just kind of that whole emotional journey of, of that. Um, right, kind of the tension, basically? Yeah, anticipation of, of what was going to happen, and, and uh, you know, knowing that you'd have to, like, these aren't scares that you can't do anything about, they're not like horror movie bad guys that you know are basically impossible to kill right, exactly. right? like you can you can overcome all of these challenges but and I can definitely relate to uh, what you're saying with your brother, too. I mean, it was basically the same situation with my brothers, kind of. I mean, it wasn't like invisible walls or anything. But I remember back when uh, we were playing the first Halo and the second Halo, they were, you know, kind of just growing up still. They didn't really know what they're doing. So I just like bring them in a map. I'm like, hey, you know, let's play this map. And I knew all the spots and I just go around killing them. And it's kind of fun <laughs> for me, but it probably wasn't fun for them. <laughs> yeah, I take, I take it you have younger siblings. Yes, I do. <laughs> yeah, I have uh, so. three older siblings. I'm youngest of, uh, of four, so I think I was pretty used to being picked at, at by that point. <laughs> yeah, so you were on there, right? I, I was kind of the you know one just go, oh, you know, they don't know what they're doing. Let me just you know bring them this map and let's just shoot them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. eventually, I'll give them credit. Eventually, they actually you know got better than me. So I'm like, dang, this isn't good anymore. <laughs> oh, you got to find a new game now. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's kind of what happened. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, so that that was <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, the younger you are nowadays, it seems like, you know, the more you know games at early age, so. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't, uh, 
for the most part, you know, when you ask me to participate in a competition, like, I, I don't feel like I'm competitive anymore. You know, <laughs> I like playing games, right. but I, uh, I, I used to, you know, we had a, uh, a lot of LAN parties when I was younger. We'd get together, bring our computers into a shared space and play, play games uh, over the network. And, you know, I, I used to play, um, like Quake 3, uh, pretty solidly and, and, uh, you know, in our, in our social circle, I was doing pretty well. And, um, we played Warcraft 3 a lot, um, like about when it was like out in beta and stuff like that. Uh, we were, you know, like competing with other people online and stuff like that. Um, so there was a point in time where like I spent enough time and, uh, you know, had like wanted to compete, you know, so strongly that, uh, it was it was actually uh, at a decent level. These days, I feel like I'm, there are too many games and there's too many other things to right. do. So I don't have I don't have enough hours in the day to invest to to get good anymore. Yeah, and that's kind of the same for me. I mean, I try to put as much time as I can into you know the games I play, but I don't have the hours to like you know be on an esports level ever. I mean, I can never do that. So. <laughs> I still have fun competing when I can. I mean, especially shooters, though. You know, don't ever ask me to win anything to shooter because I can't do shooters for for, for crap. <laughs> so I'm horribly yeah. bad at shooters. <laughs> I think I also hit like a, just a like when when RTS gaming got pretty serious, like StarCraft, and, um, Warcraft three, and things like that. I realized that there was kind of a cap to my competitiveness where I. You know, like the level of micro that people have at competitive levels for those games was just like, I don't think I'm ever going to get to that point. And that's fine. Yeah. And that's why I kind of like a lot of co-op games like State of Decay, for example, because it, it's not so much competitive. Like you can make your own little competitive things, but it's more for fun. It's not like you're actually competing. You know, it's not like, you know, you're killing each other. You're competing against the other things in the world, which I do like that. Yeah. I think, you know, the in terms of multiplayer games that I play, uh, things that are cooperative, you know, on the, in the vein of kind of like Destiny and things like that, I've played some where it's like you're all kind of trying to achieve the same goal. Or if it's a kind of shorter session-based games, like if I want to play a competitive game, I want it to be kind of over quickly. There's no there's no fun in me to lose for a long, long time. So I was really excited when Heroes of the Storm came out because I'd set, I'd, I've sunk a lot of hours into Dota 2, and uh, it was, for me, Heroes of the Storm fixed some of the problems that I like that. Dota 2 had to me because like I don't want to get stuck in a 90 minute match that I'm losing anyway. Uh, so yeah, know, that wouldn't that be fun at all. <laughs> so Dota uh, Heroes of the Storm, you know, is is matches are more in the 10 to 20 minute range, uh, and so you can kind of sit down and play, and it allows the rest of your life to exist alongside it, and um, and you can kind of if it's going badly, you're like, well, it's only like five more minutes, and it's fine. Right. I think that's the appeal for some games like, um, you know, the Battle Royales and things that are out now because you can play some short matches in a short amount of time. So say you only have like, oh, I, I just got home from work. And I only have an hour before dinner. You could like, you know, jump into a couple Battle Royale games and get that done. I mean, it's not where you have to have a huge time sink. So I think that's why they're kind of more popular right now. Yeah. Oh, At least I personally. I did play Fortnite the other day <clears throat> for the first time. And I, I mean, I just got just destroyed from all and I was like I'm just I'd be right getting there in there 
and getting killed, and I'm like, I'm not, this is actually not fun for me. I'm just going to uninstall this game. I think I played it for like 15 minutes, and I was like, nah, we're done. The only thing I'm good at in Fortnite is hiding, honestly. Like, I can probably make it to, you know, the top, you know, tier of the game, but that's only because I hid. Like, I, I can't actually <laughs> kill anyone, so I can just go around the map and be like, oh, there's a person. Let me duck in this house real quick. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but hey, technically that's a valid tactic. I mean, I, I still survived, so <laughs> yeah. I mean, their yeah, their uh, scoring mechanism is built around it. So exactly. So I mean, yeah. theoretically, if I survived to the final two by hiding and then I killed one person, I win. So theoretically, I could win that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I, I do find that in terms of competitive games, I'm more likely to play uh, things that are kind of hot seat or like local local multiplayer games. Um, Tons of friends will sit down and just get a, gather around a, a big TV and play something uh, silly for a while, and, you know, or even like cooperative, semi-cooperative games like uh, Overcooked and things like that. Um, that's kind of like you get you get kind of that sense of community or sense of, of uh, like it's more of a fun kind of social experience than if you're playing some anonymous stranger on the internet you know so absolutely and unfortunately i can't play a lot of local co-op anymore because i moved away from where i originally was so i don't have a lot of people i can play with locally here but i mean that's the beauty of online multiplayer now is i can play with friends online so that is nice yeah i know people who set up like a discord channel and then get together like once a month or once every couple weeks with some friends right. that they used to live with like live nearby and then uh, have them kind of multiplayer experience together in that sense. I used to, yeah, I mean, definitely. the same, and the same thing I think is like true for games like World of Warcraft, um, where there's like a really strong sense of community, strong sense of group, but it's a pretty social experience, and so um, people, you know, get, get together and do a raid or whatever, and it's, um, it's more, it's not just anonymous game. Yeah, see, Warcraft's one I've never actually gotten into, and it's more because I thought I would like it too much and invest too much time in it, so I kind of stayed away from it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was young and naive when, uh, when I played it right yeah. when it came out, and so saved a lot of hours into that. But it's been yeah, so. <laughs> I'm like, no, I'm going to be playing like all my life on this, from what I hear. So I'm just going to stay away, just you know, save some of my life away. It's <laughs> probably good choice. <laughs> But yeah, you mentioned uh, Half-Life 1 was basically what kind of got you into the mindset of going for a gaming career. So why did you choose programming? You know, what made you say, okay, I want to be a programmer instead of I want to be a game designer, I want to be an artist, or all the other careers that are out there? So those were kind of independent decisions. Like, they didn't really have anything to do with each other. Um, I always enjoyed, like, even before that moment, I enjoyed programming. And I, um, you know, would do scripting and, and things like that to kind of create tools for myself um, when I was, you know, from a young age. And it's always something that I that I enjoyed. And uh, as I uh, kind of was getting ready to go to college, um, people told me that I shouldn't pursue programming in college because it was such a big hobby for me. It's something that I enjoyed doing on my spare time. And if I had a career in it, I would no longer enjoy it as a hobby. And so, you know, Listening to the wisdom of my elders, I I, I took that as gospel, and I um, I enrolled in a um, electrical engineering degree in college, thinking that you know it was related as a field, you know, even right. if it wasn't 
it's the same. And I was hoping that would kind of be my saving grace that I would not burn out on uh, programming because I would be doing industrial engineering instead. What actually happened was that I, in college, I think I was in electrical engineering two years, year and a half. Um, and I would just, whenever I had um, choices for classes, I would always pick kind of digital electronics classes, which are, you know, for those who um, don't know too much about electrical engineering, those are the classes that are as close as you can get to programming uh, from the hardware side of things, from like the circuits. And so uh, I, I always chose those classes and I did better in those classes than I did in the kind of analog electronics and the more signal um, processing and things like that. And so finally, I just admitted it. And I was like, you know what? I'm, I want to do programming. You know, like, why am I, why am I like wasting my time trying to do, like, trying to find something else? And so I, I switched majors in programming. Um, but it wasn't really with the goal of, of doing video game programming because everyone told me in the same vein that everybody told me that I would be unhappy if I did programming for a living. Everybody told me, uh, that the games industry was a terrible place to work and that you really shouldn't do that to yourself. Um, so, yeah. Jeez, you got told a lot of stuff back then. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they meant well, but... No, yeah. I know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was... Uh, it definitely shaped, I think, how I chose my career and what direction I went in. Um, some of this, you know, was from uh, like people of my parents' generation, friends of the family, and things like that, and, and some of it was from my own peers, um, and that that had maybe done, I thought, spoke to some people who had done QA uh, for larger studios, and that was the games industry, it's terrible, and at the time, too, I think it was worse than it is these days. Um, historically, you know, there's been a lot of kind of crunch and poor life uh, work balance, and Unrealistic expectations of employees. Um, you know, that's something that's been plaguing games industry for a long time. No, absolutely. I definitely understand. You know, kind of what you're going through a little bit because I switched my majors myself in college, and not only that, I kind of had the same pressures. You know, socially that oh well, you know, what you want to do that might not be good. You should go for this more stable thing, and it's like, eh, okay, I'll, I'll go for that. So like, you kind of you know end up thinking, okay, maybe I should go for this more stable thing, but then you realize, no way, this isn't what I want to do. So yeah, I mean, at some point, you know, you gotta you gotta make sure that you're that you're doing something for you. You know, that's gonna make you happy. exactly. But I think so. Like, kind of the the thing that actually changed it was that like, my first job out of college was that. Company called Nvidia that does uh, graphics cards, and so um, it was to me. It was a, like the classes I took in college. Some of them were pretty interesting, from like like graphics programming and things like that, and game uh, game programming. They were interesting topics, and Nvidia seemed like a company where I could do something that was adjacent to that, that was similar, you know, that had a lot of similarities to game programming, but um, that didn't have the burden of being quote unquote the games industry. Um, but uh, and, and I mean that's actually how I ended up in the games industry too was um, spending time at Nvidia uh, and then you know really enjoying the work that I did there uh, and then switching to, to just like a mobile security startup in, uh, in San Francisco um, but when I was there I, I I was reading the news about how Valve was uh, backing Linux and, and was focusing on that and that they had a programmer from NVIDIA who was working on site with them um, to help them 
you know, optimize their performance and to help improve the NVIDIA graphics driver and things like that, which is exactly what I worked on. I worked on the latest graphics driver when I was at NVIDIA. And so uh, I saw that piece of news and I was like, you know what? Like, of all the things I've heard of the games industry, everybody says that Valve is a really good company to work with. And so I reached out to the people I used to work with. I was like, hey, do you know who it is that traveled up to Valve to help them with their graphics driver? And turned out to be somebody that I had worked with directly. Uh, he's a great guy, and uh, he's very involved uh, in the Linux gaming community. Uh, so I reached out to him, and he got me in touch with them, the people who were running that team. <clears throat> and so that's why I joined uh, Valve was to help them with um, porting their games to uh, Mac and Linux, and to work on kind of Steam for Linux uh, projects. No, that's really cool that you actually kind of got your start that way too and that's kind of what it seems like you know it sounds like from a lot of people in the industry is that they kind of got their start by you know knowing this person who kind of you know gave them a little bit of a push is that usually how it starts out you think i definitely heard a lot of stories like that um i do know that for example uh, there are some people we hire that we work with in some capacity either as kind of like a contractor where we're like we're not sure how well this person is going to work out and we hire them on as a contractor and then as we kind of see how they work, we'll, we might say, okay, you know, we'll give you a full-time offer. Um, but I do see a lot of people get hired because, you know, they, they have worked with somebody in the past and they have a positive uh, relationship. I think in some ways it's problematic. Um, I think the games industry as, a, as an industry has a huge diversity problem. Um, and, uh, I think that applies to pretty much every company that I've, uh, that I've worked at and that I, uh, uh, that I've heard of, uh, it's just that there's a lot of white dudes. It's just, it's a little unhealthy. And I think part of that is because yeah. of that exact thing, where it's like, uh, you hire people you know because those are safe pets, you know? Like, that's a person that you right. uh, have worked with, or somebody that you know have worked with and had positive experience with them. Um, and so, it's less of a risk, I think, that's kind of how they justify it. And so they, so then, a lot of your hiring process becomes uh, hiring those people. And that means that it's harder for people who are, you know, women or minorities to um, get jobs because they weren't kind of a part of that network to begin with. And getting your first job is usually the hardest. And so that means that, like, a lot of those people can give up um, because of the just massive amount of friction they get when they're trying to get into the industry, um, which then reinforces that whole system of, uh, you hire those you know, and you have only worked basically white dudes, and so you're going to hire white dudes. Um, yeah, it seems like it's kind of a downward spiral that it's hard to fix, basically. Yeah, I think, well, at least as long as you <clears throat> kind of rely on hiring uh, long-time veterans and people that are kind of uh, friends of the family, in, in a sense, um, and you kind of have to revisit how you do your hiring, and revisit how you do right. your recruiting and sourcing. Um, to that. Yeah, I know there's definitely some companies that have been in the news lately that we don't have to get into, but I mean, Riot Games, for example, has uh, definitely been in the news negative way, so. Yeah, uh, and I, I mean, I'm glad that there's some <clears throat> some focus on it. I think in the Riot, right, uh, absolutely. Games case, it's, uh, I feel like that went way too far before there w it was in the news, you know, like that was that's right. kind of an extreme example. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, I'm glad that there's been more focus on it and that people are talking about it. I hope so. I mean, you know, we don't have to get into it too much, but I hope, you know, there's a change at the top of that company or something to actually kind of have the culture change there. Yeah.
I mean, I can't do anything about other people's uh, behavior, but uh, I we have been kind of focusing it on the labs uh, recently on trying to address, you know, kind of why we have uh, a kind of a relatively low amount of diversity at the company and trying to think about, you know, what things we do to reinforce that and what we can do to change that. Yeah, that's definitely good. And that's definitely a good practice to have. But in terms of programming, what would you say in your words that you do as a programmer? So for anyone that, you know, is listening that has no idea what a programmer does, what would you kind of tell them you do? Um, so I've kind of done a few different things in my career around that, but um, in the, you know, most general sense of it, I think that I, I create building blocks to solve problems. Um, and part of that is figuring out what building blocks are necessary, you know, but, um, I feel like almost everything we do is in service of other disciplines. Um, we create tools for designers to, uh, create experiences or to tell stories and we, you know, create tools for, uh, 3D modelers and, and, uh, you know, to do artists and UI and UX to kind of, uh, express, uh, their visions. Uh, so that's kind of the, the very general sense of it. Um, there's kind of different uh, levels of it in terms of programming. There's more kind of low-level systems programming, uh, engine programming, where what you're doing is you're kind of creating a framework that it all sits inside. And so you're putting together, you know, you're creating an application that will allow somebody to say, here is the 3D model, show it on the screen. Or, you know, here is some scripted logic from the designer, you know, apply it to the characters in the world. Um, so that's kind of the, the lowest level of it. I've done some of that. And then the other part of it is like, <clears throat> more from the gameplay perspective, where you work very directly with, um, here is a part of the vision of the game that we want to express. And so you might sit down with a designer says, you know, I want there to be, uh, I want to kind of reduce the mobility of the player in certain situations so that we can direct them, you know, towards the thing we want them to see. And so that might be things like, okay, hey, how about we add fall damage? You know, like if you jump off this cliff, you'll take damage. And if this cliff is too tall, you'll die. Um, and then, you know, they can take that and go, cool, now we can make a level where we use those things where we say, you know, there's a cliff here that's going to kill you if you jump off of it. <clears throat> so we're going to kind of direct you to go a different direction. Um, or maybe like in a lot of games where if you move through water, you move slower or something like that, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, some of it is uh, more systemic where it's like, what, you know, how how can the designer affect the world? Um, so in the case of like State of Decay, you know, we have systems that, consume resources every day, you know, like your people to eat. Um, you have a system that calculates morale of your community, which is like, hey, do you have enough beds for everyone to sleep in? And, you know, it's about counting that up and doing kind of that bookkeeping. And so those are kind of tools that we we put together in, in collaboration with the designers and, and that they can kind of tweak and work with to create the experience that is actually fun and and things that like kind of run in the background like that is it more difficult to create those like say you know 
the morale issue or um, the counting the days per day or something like that? Is that more difficult to create those things in the background that always run? Um, I find those to be the easier ones. And so <clears throat> I think that the less directly the player interacts with something, the easier it kind of is to, to do it because you have more room to kind of fudge things and to, you know, like it's, it's all smoke and mirrors, right? Video games are, they're all fake. Um, and, and I mean that not just from the perspective of like, it's not a real experience, but from the sense of like, it's not, we're not actually, most games are not trying to simulate reality. They're trying to, you know, uh, create a fun experience. And so if the user doesn't interact or the customer doesn't interact with it directly, like it's not something where you're fighting hand to hand combat or whatever, uh, I can do whatever I want behind the scenes and you will never tell, right? Like, how we calculate how much food is consumed or how we do, uh, you know, what the effects of morale are or how we trigger those things to happen. We have a lot more flexibility with those because uh, it's not something that these interactions interact with directly. But on the other hand, when they don't do that, you have a, a different problem of how you present that information to the user, uh, which is it's really important to people's sense of agency in a, in a world where they can feel like they can change things and affect things, they need to be understand. They need to be able to understand what's happening, why things are happening, and what things are affecting the state of the world. And so, when they're not able to interact with people directly, like if you get bit by a zombie, you're like, okay, of course my health went down because I saw the zombie bite me. But right. um, if your food goes down because you had a certain amount of people in the world, and it's not like, you know, for example, Red Dead Redemption Two, the food system there. They have two food systems, basically, which is like the character and the community. And so the community system is super opaque, and it's really hard to tell why it goes down and how often it goes down and kind of what the effect of having low food is. Like, having played that game, those were difficult answers, uh, difficult questions for me to answer. And that's that speaks to how hard that problem is of kind of communicating a lot of information in a, in a sense that's not overwhelming. But then you have the other food system, which is for the character, which is like you go into your inventory and you hit use on a piece of you know, venison, and the character physically eats it. And right. you know that, like, your character's going to gain weight doing that. You know that they're going to generate health because they did that, and there's kind of user action that caused it. And so communicating it becomes a lot more... Uh, it becomes, becomes a lot more implicit. Like, it's just it's a part of that action the player is taking. But when it's not, when it's in background, you kind of have to find the venues to communicate. No, it definitely makes sense. And I mean, I know on the streams a couple of times, there's been people that have asked and um, I forget who was actually on the stream at the time, but they said they didn't really want to get into the details because they're talking about how the difficulty ramps up when you go up number of days. And they didn't really want to divulge that because that's supposed to be like more of a background thing. So that could kind of be what you're talking about a little bit. Yeah, and it's um, it is it is very much like that. And it's interesting they brought up that example because uh, one of the benefits of us not being super explicit about uh, what causes the difficulty to go up. Uh, I think I've actually mentioned it at some point, but maybe it was on the stream or something like that uh, when we were streaming for Extra Life, but uh, I'm not going to repeat it now since evidently that's something we're not sharing. <laughs> but uh, the benefit of us not being kind of uh, transparent about that particular aspect of it is that people tell their own stories. Um, right. Games are really powerful for that, where you will kind of explain things for yourself. And so same thing comes with like loot distribution, for example. People will 
make up these rules in their mind of like why they got good loot that time and not this other time and what they need to do to make sure they get good loot. Um, and the same, you know, with the difficulty people have, like, they imagine that these things are causing it. Um, and, uh, and for example, I've heard that, like, map moves, like, you, you travel, instead of getting to, you travel to the map, the difficulty goes up. Um, which, for the record, is not true. Um, but that doesn't really matter. And I, and there are reasons for why it feels that way and why people think that's the case. Um, and, and that's like, I think that's a powerful kind of like tool to, if you use it intentionally, um, where people get to kind of build their own narrative for how the systems work under the hood. And as long as it's not inconsistent, like as long as, um, they consistently have that experience, it doesn't really matter that it's not accurate. Yeah. Right. I definitely like that it's not out in the open as much because then it allows the player to craft their own story, kind of like you're saying. I mean, and that's part of what State of Decay is supposed to be about is, you know, the player crafting their own story. So I do like that because I think if it was known, OK, you know, if you do X, Y and Z, that's how you get the difficulty up. If you do, you know, uh, Y, then that's how you get the difficulty down. And basically, it would make make a situation where players are going to game the system a little bit more and I don't really want us to be able to game the system as much as possible so yeah yeah there's no way to reduce the difficulty so it only goes up well that's good then <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but we did we did uh, during testing I think it was actually pretty late in development too um, which is one of the like challenges with a game like State of K2 is that it's such a big game with so many different systems um, there's a lot of things that does that they don't become apparent until you're getting pretty close to shipping it because then everything is kind of starting to settle down and you're like, maybe you were hoping another system would help uh, communicate information to the player or solve, you know, some kind of pressure or things like that. Like, maybe you were expecting one of the base uh, systems to apply pressure for the player to go out more often. And so you were kind of relying on that and how you were doing your loot distribution or something like that. And then as things settle, you realize that that's not the case, and you kind of have to start addressing those things. Um, but uh, the one of the things we found was that there was uh, there was a way in which you could um, there was a way in which you could make the game really easy by only playing a single character, um, which was really weird, right? Like it's it's a game about community and it's a game about right. Uh, about surviving uh, together, and so uh, we had just never kind of considered how our difficulty mechanic worked if you didn't bring your community or switch characters or do. And I've actually seen two people try that. Yeah, well, so we uh, did Surreal change Scotsman that. and Mister Dart both did that. Yeah, so yeah, I mean, now it's actually now it should actually be challenging to do it. Um, but at the time, you know, we hadn't actually considered that somebody would do that, uh, and so when all those systems came together, we were like, oh. We need to address this. This can't. <laughs> right. We can't just leave it like this. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of both figuring out what the players are going to want to do, and then figuring out you know what they expect to happen in response, and then making sure you communicate where those things don't match. And of course, you know, there's probably somebody listening at home when they listen to this. They're probably like. They're talking about difficulty, you know, what difficulty? There's no difficulty, like, because there's a contingent <laughs> of players that it, it's too easy for them right now. And, mm -hmm. you know, 
to those players, it was announced that um, sometime early next year, there is going to be something to, you know, hopefully deal with that difficulty problem. And I know you can't talk about it right now, but, you know, it is coming and I'm excited for that. So, yeah, I, I, uh, I am really excited about that, too. Um, you know, there's there's the talk of Zed Hunter you know, coming out and it is uh, I have n- I was not um, that involved in working on Zed Hunter. Um, I had some kind of advisory role on the project, but I didn't actually do any of the work, <clears throat> which means that it's really interesting to me to look at the Set Hunter DLC now that it's kind of done. I you know, we've done internal playtesting and things like that, and to see kind of how cool uh, that's been, how's it been coming together. Um, and it's been really exciting to me. But the, and the other side of that is that like, uh, the thing that I've been working on when I haven't, since I haven't been on Set Hunter, is that I've been working on um, now I'm like, I need to look the trailer and look at the actual wording of what it said in the announcement. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, but, uh, you know, we've been talking about, um, of, about how to kind of increase the level of challenge. Does that, does that sound like a, a yeah, I think all that was like phrase was that there would be some sort of, you know, potential solution to the difficulty issue. So like yeah. that's pretty much all that was said. Like it wasn't anything besides that. Just you know, there's going to be some kind of solution to the difficulty issue. So yeah, that, that's basically um, all that was said. And then um, there was announced that Trumbull Valley will be coming sometime next year. Right. And so <clears throat> the kind of you know, uh, so so that's kind of what I've been working on is is the new uh, uh, the new effort towards increasing the giving more options for difficulty for players and. Um, and that's something that I'm really excited about. Like, I love that when we get to announce things, like when we have a chance to talk about these things, and uh, there's kind of a lot of decisions that go into whether or not we talk about something, because part of it, too, is that we do a lot of work internally. Um, it's kind of exploratory, where we're like, hey, let's see if uh, we can do this, and let's see whether we think this would be good, and then, you know, maybe we'll, we'll want something along those lines, but we don't know exactly how we're going to package it or how we're going to brand it or, you know, what we're going to sell it as, you know, like what sell is uh, not necessarily for dollars, but in the sense of like, what is the, how to present this to the customer. How to market it and stuff, right. Yeah. yeah. And so um, it sometimes can be hard to talk about things before we've, uh, before we've kind of settled on those things, but it doesn't mean we're not doing the work, right? Like we're still uh, programming and, and designing and, testing um, and so it was really exciting for me to have this XO18 announcement because I, uh, I, love talk, I love being able to talk about what I'm doing anymore. Uh, something I'm really excited about and uh, like you said there have been people in the community that are uh, that have not found the game to be as challenging as I would like it to be which I think is that's reasonable I think that um, State of K2 being a bigger game <clears throat> in terms of audience than State of K1 um, there's a lot of uh, focus on, you know, making sure that this is a game that anyone can play, right? Like we want to, we want to make right. sure that there's a broader, that we have a broader appeal for the broader fan base that we're we're reaching now. And I think the other part of it is people are kind of comparing State of K two at launch with State of K one after like Yos or whatever, which you know was a game that had been um, shipped and then kind of iterated on for an entire year. Um, or, you know, comparing it to, um, you know, Breakdown and things like that, which is, those weren't available when the game came out. Right, because those were DLCs in themselves, so that wasn't yeah. available at the time. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so I think that uh, we've kind of been listening to that. that's something that people want. You know, they want uh, 
to find ways to make the game more challenging. You know, I see people on Reddit who are posting like, "Here's uh, here are the rules I play with by with you know to increase the difficulty. Like I will <laughs> yes. you know, prevent myself from doing these things, and for the undead trials when we're playing Daybreak, you know, the whole concept was what are like the most challenging ways for you to beat Daybreak, uh, right? Scored based on overcoming these challenges, and so you know, I think that creativity is great, and I think that it's fun to see see that stuff, and I think it's uh, some some ways it's inspirational too. Like we can look at that stuff and be like, "What are the challenges that people find interesting, and what what would they uh, want the game to be like if it was harder?" Um, but it's definitely, you know, it's definitely told us that there's a desire for the ability to to challenge himself further, uh, but still play kind of the base game. And so we're kind of that's what we're exploring right now. We're trying to um, yeah, and I definitely understand that so, too because. I mean, there's, you know, players that want more difficulty and they basically, you know, go out there on their own. They create more ways to make it more difficult. But then there's also players that, you know, they're not really thinking in those terms. So they're not going to create the new way. So like what we do with the Undead Trials, they're not going to think, oh, maybe I could try this, you know, without ever going in front of the wall or something like that. They're not going to think about that option. So they're never going to experience that. So it is nice to have like an actual, you know, difficulty package or whatever is coming shipped that way. Yeah, and I think that, you know, like, there's a benefit to having the game enforce the rules, too, because then you're, you're kind of guaranteeing that you're not violating the rules you're setting down, even unintentionally, and um, it gives you kind of that I think sense of bragging rights, where you're like, hey, I did this thing on you know... Um, <laughs> right, and with achievements, <laughs> I'm, too. I, I'm trying to, like, find a way to phrase this that doesn't imply that this is a word we're using internally. Uh, but, you know, like, I did this with, you know, difficulty setting, blah, you know, like, this is how I, and I still, you know, achieved a legacy or whatever, and like, there's a, there's like kind of a, everybody knows what you're talking about when you say that, like, that's a, that it's an understood concept that everybody shares. Which I think it's really powerful. No, yeah, that definitely makes sense. And, you know, I think Undead Labs has been doing a great job listening. And I think, you know, XO18 uh, News definitely proved that because there was contingent of people that wanted more weapons. You know, well, crossbows are coming in the Zeb Hunter pack, along with, you know, consumables and different ways of play. You know, people want um, a difficulty option that is coming. People wanted a new map that is coming as well. So I think you guys are doing a great job listening to the community. And I think that it just takes a little bit of time to get all these things done. You know, we want to make sure that we do a good job of them and... Uh that we kind of don't ship something that's half-baked. I think that it was an unfortunate lull between Daybreak and now, where we hadn't talked about any future plans. Which, right. um, you know, I, I think honestly, part of it too is this uh, Microsoft acquisition has made that a little more challenging too, because there was kind of a period where there was a lot of change in the company um, just in terms of like, like, for example, like how how do we t- pay our bills or things like that, right? Like it's it's the very concrete things where um, it's not like it's a bad change or anything, but it's a it's a time of transition where it's like we're still figuring out how we fit into the Microsoft uh, organization. Well, just all that, yeah, yeah, and you know, um, for example, uh, we did a user research test recently, and you know, in the past, that's kind of been Microsoft like they are like here, you know, XSR. Um, user research department because they have an amazing user research department with great staff who really do a great job of, of figuring out that stuff. Uh, but now we're like, okay, this is the first time we're doing a user research test after we got acquired. So what does that mean? Like, how do we, 
how do we use those resources? And what do we get in line? Do we, you know, is there kind of budgeting to it? Is there, you know, how long does it take to get, you know, because uh, they're a service department that works for all of Microsoft. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's been a lot of change, I think, which has, was kind of added to the, to the lull, basically, where we were not talking about what we were doing because we hadn't kind of settled on that. We had so much other stuff going on. That's coming. Well, it's getting better now. And I think one of the things that some people didn't understand, which I tried to convey to as many people as I could, is that like basically, you know, pre-launch it was advertised that there was going to be Independence Pack and Daybreak. So a lot of people I don't think understood that you know everyone at Undead Labs had to finish those products first because they were already advertised. You know that was already what was supposed to be coming. So you all didn't have a chance to work on you know things that the community wanted until that was done. Right, yeah. I mean, it was important to us that we delivered kind of on the promises that we made um, before launch. And so it was, in some ways, I don't want to say like, I was going to say shackles, but that's maybe not the right phrase. But I think it's good to be free of those expectations. Because um, those expectations were set kind of far in advance of launch while we're still working on the base game and things like that. Uh, but now we're kind of over that hump and we, we have kind of a lot more freedom in um, what, what we present to the community and then what we what we deliver um, because we haven't made any like any we hadn't made any promises until we talked about uh, Zed Hunter and trouble and, and difficulty uh, on that side. So. Right, I'm definitely excited for all those. And um, you did mention that you haven't you didn't work a lot on the Zed Hunter. And I know when I talked to Jeffrey in episode 33. He mentioned that he didn't work a lot on Daybreak specifically. So, is that kind of common in the team where, like, you all kind of split off into different sectors? Okay, you know, you're going to take this uh, new update, you're going to take this new update. Is that kind of common? Or Yeah, I, I think it's, uh, it is kind of how we work. It's, uh, I don't think it's necessarily that cut and dry uh, because I think that uh, we kind of shift around during the process. So, for example, when we started uh, exploratory work on how we're going to address difficulty options in the game, um, it was just me. Like, I was the only programmer out there. There were, you know, um, designers and UX people and QA and things like that, but I was the only programmer out there. Um, and then as we've kind of been ramping up that process, we've been adding more people to the kind of team. Um, we could divide into smaller teams. Um, companies. 65 people at this point, and so um, yeah, we divide into smaller teams, and then we uh, tackle, some of it is like certain aspects of it, um, so for Daybreak for example, there was uh, a team that did kind of the level layout and um, addressed, you know, like, what are the technical needs for um, destructible walls, for example, because that was a new piece of technology that we hadn't had in the game before, and so they had, right. um, you know, like uh, the world building team it was like the world building artists, and I was uh, prop artists, and I were um, you know, the programmer who had to help um, add that technology, and designers to help figuring out the layout and stuff like that. So it's kind of a group of different disciplines, but they were doing that aspect of paper. And then there was, you know, a team that handled achievements and rewards and unlocks. You know, like how you get more gear as you kind of progress. You know, a person might be on multiple of those teams, like, might just be for the first quarter of development that we're doing, you know, uh, world building or whatever. And then, you know, later in the process, that person who's on that team might be on a different team. And so there's a lot of flexibility. I think we move around a lot 
between different projects and different aspects of the projects. Um, but yeah, and <clears throat> so for Daybreak, you know, uh, the stuff that Jeffrey's really good at, um, there wasn't that much of a need for in Daybreak. Uh, and so, you know, he found other ones. Yeah, I think he said he mainly just worked on, like, the Red Talon skills, and that's pretty much his main contribution to it. So Yeah, yeah, because, I mean, Jeffrey's done an amazing work at all the traits. I don't even know what the number is now. It's probably, like, 1,200 traits or something we have in the game. Uh, he said it was about that, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, he's done a great job of that. Uh, he's uh, he's uh, done some of the mission design and things like that, too. Um, skills, you know, putting together all the skills and things like that. I mean, in Daybreak, they're the only thing that was really in that category was like, traits and skills for the Red Town stuff. Right. And then there were a few, like, improvement missions and stuff like that in the base game, but uh, didn't hit that much. Uh, didn't need that much from this side of the game. No, I think that's a really good way to do it, though, the way that it's structured like that, because then you can kind of, okay, this project is done, now we can kind of shift some more people over this way. So I think that's a nice way to do it. Yeah, and so, you know, in the same sense, we were working on Zed Hunter and exploring difficulty um, stuff at the same time. Um, so we were programmers who were kind of on those two different teams, and we were also doing, uh, kind of, at the same time, we are also doing the bug fix releases for day, uh, Daybreak, so like 401, 402, and um, and so, for example, um, Sam, uh, one of my coworkers, was spending a lot of time um, uh, figuring out the audio bug that we were having uh, for a while there. And yeah, that was a pain for a while. <laughs> yeah, no, it was it was it was pretty bad. And once he, you know, knocked that out of the park, he came over and he started um, working with me. And, some of that, and, difficulty stuff. and in terms of challenges for you, what would you say is like? one of the bigger challenges for you if you had to pick you know oh this thing right here this is kind of what makes it a, a bigger challenge for me uh, could you clarify a little bit what you mean by that? yeah if you're going to program something into the game what is um a little bit harder for you to program like what um is more challenging or takes more time for you to actually work around yeah uh it's a it's a good question i think you know it's always uh, harder to change an existing system than it is to create a new one uh, if you're if you're changing something that's already in the game, um, there's a lot of kind of consequence. Like how does that affect the balance of the game? And how does that affect you know the testing of that feature? You know you're changing something that already worked and you get verify that worked. Uh, how do you make sure that that doesn't break when you do a change, make a change to it? Um, I think there's the testing as a whole. You know like how do you make sure that the work you do is like you have confidence in the in how it works, and you've given uh, the QA team the team the tools to make sure that it works the way it's intended, and to communicate that to them. Um, I think also anything that I mean in games, like we were talking about earlier, uh, how you communicate to with the player um, is a huge huge factor in their understanding of the system, and that can be really hard to make sure that you're communicating clearly and in appropriate amounts um, because it's that thing where you get a pop-up and you just hit okay because you always get that pop-up and you don't care um, and you, you kind of like that right. decision fatigue kind of it, yeah. yeah or text fatigue that people can have like you want to make sure that you communicate things in a way that doesn't um, it doesn't hit that it doesn't um, drive you to just like whatever I don't care you know you want to make sure that it's engaging I think those are kind of like the hardest aspects. And as far as like technical problems, like the difficulty of the technical aspects of it, 
there's not really a specific thing that is that is that stands out to me. Like I, I really enjoy a challenging problem. I really enjoy uh, something that's like uh, a logic puzzle, basically. Like how do I solve this from a from a intellectual perspective? Uh, I enjoy that a lot, and I think a lot of programmers do. It's just kind of part of why we do what we do. Um, but I don't think that those are um, those aren't the hardest part of the job, you know. Like the hardest part of the job is uh, is how you create a good user experience and how you communicate it to it, to the user. You know that that is like I said, QA. It's how you communicate information, how user interaction plays with your system. That definitely makes sense, and it kind of uh, makes me think of one of the examples that they I think talk about on a stream where someone you know was mentioning, oh, I really want a fire station base. You know, can you make a fire station base and Someone on the stream was saying, well, it's a little bit uh, harder than it sounds to do that because if we just popped a fire station base into a map, then that changes the balancing issues for the whole map. Yeah. Oh, it's very true, right? Like, and, and there's a lot of expectations that are set into it. Uh, I think our mission system in some ways makes it really hard um, to test things because our mission system is very, uh, it's very general purpose. And so um, it's set up to kind of use a set of rules to when it wants to when it wants to create a populated mission in the world, um, it's, it uses a set of rules to find kind of what is an appropriate location for this. Um, and the designers can specify those rules and they can be almost arbitrarily complex. And so if you remove a building and put a new one in its place, um, you're suddenly, like, you're changing how often those missions will occur, like, about, like, distribution of different missions. Because, you know, maybe some, some mission was looking for uh, you know, a house, like a, a residential house that was within 300 meters of a, uh, you know, shed. And then you remove that shed and you put the fire station there. And all of a sudden, you know, now there's way less cases where we can populate the mission. No, it definitely makes sense. And I can understand how that would, you know, have a lot of balancing issues like that. So. You know, if people want the fire station, it might have to wait for a potential new map. But we'll we'll see what happens, I guess. So, yep. But if someone is, you know, kind of thinking, oh, I, I kind of, you know, like the stuff that he's describing here, and they kind of think that they might want to become a programmer, what would you suggest they do to, you know, kind of get in the industry? Would they have to go, you know, get a programming degree, or are there other things that they could do, or what would you say is the best course for them to take? So, uh, I don't have a. I went to college for programming, and then I went to the U.S. to study abroad for a year, and then uh, dropped out and never came home. So <laughs> I'm not going to say that you're going to that's a requirement. Uh, I'm not right. saying to not get a degree either. I think that I learned a lot of really valuable things uh, in college, uh, both from a, so I, so. Let me step back for a second. I guess. One of the things that I didn't talk about earlier, um, when we were talking about what kind of programming is and what what that means, you know, I was saying that it's about building, it's about the creating the building blocks of the video game. You know, it's about giving the tools to the different disciplines to do what they need. But the thing that's really that I don't think I, I emphasize strongly enough in that context is that to be able to do that, you need to be able to communicate uh, with people. Uh, and that's, that's I think, a very commonly overlooked skill. I think that, um, especially because programmers tend to be logically minded, I think that they appreciate kind of the, 
the purity of a technical problem um, where you don't have to consider kind of the implications of it other than from a technical perspective. Um, I think that that's part of why it becomes a little bit of a skill, but I think that empathy and communication, like being able to understand the problems that your users are having, that your uh, coworkers are having, you know, being able to talk to a designer or an artist about what their workflow is like or what problems they're trying to solve or being able to ask questions and understand, you know, uh, what they're asking for when they're asking for a tool or asking for a feature in the game. I think that is uh, such a, just an amazingly important skill. And so it's, it's just, yeah, and I, I think that a lot of job listings too don't emphasize that aspect of it. Or really, it's, it's, it's people skills. It's being able to work with people and being able to think about what, uh, what you're creating and who you're creating for. Um, and so from the perspective of that, you know, I think that Working with people in any facility is going to help you, you know, make it in game development. Um, it doesn't really matter what you do, but as long as you, you try to work on your communication, try to work on your empathy, um, that's going to be a huge thing. Um, as far as the programming aspect of it, I think that there's a lot of ways to get into that. You know, there's these days there are like boot camp programs where you can kind of learn how to program, you know, in a kind of intensive plan. Uh, less than a year. Right. Um, or, or like online courses and things. Yeah, there's online courses you can do on your own time. Um, you can pick up a book or talk to somebody that you know that knows a program and have them teach you kind of this basics of it, get started, and then just spend a lot of time doing it. Um, that's the, that's the uh, approach that I took. Um, I uh, I remember trying to learn the Java programming language when I was a kid and uh, I had a, a book, and this is pretty early, so uh, you know English is my second language. And so um, there was a, a part of the book uh, that I, I got to that talked about the different math operators in Java, and it talked about the modulo operator, and I talked about remi- the remainder um, of a division, and I didn't know what those words meant, and so <laughs> eventually I had to just give up. I was just like, I can't. Like, and I think a sane person would have just kept going and been like, it's fine, I don't have to learn this. But I was so obsessed about the fact that I did not understand this word that I put the whole book down and I, I came back to it years later. But, um, uh, yeah, and so, you know, I think that there's lots of approaches to learning programming. And, um, I think whatever, whatever fits best with where your life is, you know, if you're a high school student, uh, or a middle school student, or even a college student, um, who's not studying programming. You can do this on your own time. Um, you can start programming things, uh, start making projects. Um, and uh, but if you're, you know, if you're choosing where to go to college, I think any kind of programming degree uh, will serve you well. I don't think that um, there are schools that spe- specialize in, in educating game developers, um, and they have there are pros and cons to those programs. But I don't. Um, and I see a lot of the like I see a lot of those people in the workplace, but I don't think I see a lot of them because they're necessarily inherently better qualified for the jobs. It's just that if you're the kind of person who enrolls in a private school to learn how to make video games, it's because you really, really want to make video games, and so you're right. going to end up in the games industry. Because um, I I just went to a general like uh, computer science and engineering 
Yeah, if you, I think people are better off going to, uh, you know, like in Europe, uh, it would just be like a university, presumably where the tuition is paid for by the government. Um, or if you're, you know, living in the U.S., you're in state uh, university that's just, you know, that has like, uh, what's called like resident uh, tuition or whatever. Like it's cheaper for you to go because you live in that state. Um, you know, like those kinds of things are probably your best options if you're trying to choose what to do. Um, and as you go through a degree like that and kind of computer science, you know, where you can kind of pick classes that teach you things that are interesting to you. And that might be relevant for programming, but uh, at UC San Diego, where I went, for example, they had uh, multiple like, graphics programming classes, um, which were super interesting to me. It's that, it's that. Yeah, and then yeah, the other, go ahead. Yeah, it definitely sounds like there's a lot of options now for people that, you know, maybe 20 years ago, it was basically you have to do this or this. But, you know, it seems like now there's a lot of options for how you can actually get the experience. Yeah. And I think experience is kind of the other part of it. Um, at when when you're first learning how to program, I think it's common to be really ambitious. To be, you know, you want to make your own game engine and design your own game and finish this like game and it's an MMO and it's online and it's 3D. And like, you know, you have like these grand visions. And I think that's a normal part of the process. And also, uh, you're never going to do that. Um, because it's just a ridiculous amount of work. And so right. uh, I think part of, of learning to program and learning to to be a good product developer, no matter what kind of product you're making, is uh, finding, learning uh, through experience that you uh, fit uh, more than you can chew, right? Like you, you're, you're not, you're, uh, you're, what's the expression, eyes are bigger than your mouth, is that in your stomach? I don't know. Uh, like I, said, I think it's stomach. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, and so I think it's learning that and, and getting a sense for you know what is realistic, and, and then just trying to make things on your own. If you have the privilege of having uh, the time and resources to work on a game in your spare time, um, then I think that's a hugely helpful thing to do. It's it's really like being able to show that you created something on your own. That you got to something quality. Like it doesn't have to be the best thing ever. It doesn't have to be even a good thing. Uh, as long as it is a thing that is finished, that is a, a huge, like valuable to show. Right. So it, yeah. At least shows the ambition. It at least shows that you want to do it. So. Yeah. Yep. No, I think that's definitely helpful. So you know, hopefully that helps anyone out there that you know is thinking about programming your career. And I mean, if you have any questions, you can always uh, tweet at me on Twitter. Um, you can um, uh, you can put my Twitter handle on the show notes, probably. Absolutely, I'll do that for yeah. sure. Um, the I'm happy to answer any questions about like about game development or programming or whatever. Like my opinions, um, I obviously am not going to answer any questions about unannounced uh, Undead Labs projects. Uh, <laughs> right? Yes. <laughs> but uh, but I'm happy to talk to anyone, um, no matter how simple you think your question is or how dumb you think it is. Like I'm, I will not hesitate to answer your questions so please yeah that, that that's the thing with questions too i mean like there's really not many questions that are a dumb question because you know somebody out there else is wondering about it too and they just didn't want to ask it so yeah, yeah. and you can send me a direct message or you can tweet at me either way 
But moving forward to Undead Labs, um, how did you actually get started with Undead Labs? So how did you transition your previous experience into your job now? Um, so it's a, that's an interesting question. Like, <laughs> um, before I was at Undead Labs, I was at a company called Uber Entertainment. Um, briefly at a company called Hairbrain Scenes. Um, and I, when I applied for my job at uh, Uber Entertainment, um, I had also sent a, a job, uh, like a, an application to uh, Undead Labs. Uh, but Undead Labs was in the middle of, of trying to ship a game. And so I didn't hear back from them until months later, at which point I'd already taken a job with Uber Entertainment. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was an amusing, an amusing thing. And then, um, when I was at Uber Entertainment and I started thinking about, well, do, you know, do I, do I want to find a new job? You know, something that I feel is more suited to the kind of work I want to be doing right now. Um, I, uh, I, uh, went to a, a job fair, a career fair, uh, as a recruiter. Like I was looking for candidates for Uber Entertainment and, uh, I ran into Jeff Strain, who's the owner of Unnet Labs. Um, and I told him the amusing anecdote about how I, you know, like, like, your name looks so familiar. Like, where do I know you from? And he's like, oh, yeah, I'm the owner of Undead Labs. I'm like, oh, yeah. Like, I applied for a job <laughs> there, awesome. like, two years ago. And and uh, you guys came back to me, like, four months later. Um, and he was very apologetic. And he was like, you know, getting his business card and stuff like that. And, um, and yeah, and so, so, so I applied for a job there. And, and it was amusing because I, uh, I, I owned... Um, State of the K one on PC, and I looked and I was like, I haven't played this game. Like I'm applying for this job and I haven't played State of the K. Um, and I was like, Why didn't I play it? Like this looks like a game for me, and I own it. Like it's on in my Steam library. And then I looked at the date, and turns out that uh, it came out on Steam um, just around the time that we were shipping Planetary Annihilation at Your Entertainment. Um, which was a very hectic time for me at work. And so I didn't have a whole lot of time. So I bought the game with the intention of playing it. Right. And then I was like, I don't have time to play <laughs> this game sense. right now. <laughs> uh, and then I kind of forgot about it. And so uh, my first experience after playing City of Decay was, I think I played it for like 20 hours a week before my interview, um, where I was like, you know, and I, and, you know, I really enjoyed the game. Um, I have yet to get around to playing the expansion packs, reasonably enough. But um, yeah, I played the base game for like 20 hours and, uh, I really enjoyed it. I was like, okay, yeah, totally. I can see why I bought this game and why I wanted to play it. And this seems like a good time as I need to play it. Yeah, it seems like a good thing to brush up on, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but And part of what interested me, I think, about Undead Labs was that I wanted to do, um, like, I've done a lot of systems engine programming and, you know, having worked on a Linux graphics driver and working on porting uh, games to Mac and Linux. Like, it's been a lot of, of work that's pretty far removed from the user experience and what the players actually um, interact with on a daily basis. And so um, part of what I wanted to do when I got to Unnet Labs was to kind of transition to doing more uh, gameplay level things and more things that were directly kind of in front of the player when they were playing. And so that was, that was kind of, that was kind of where I was coming from. I really felt like that was uh, something I got an opportunity to do, you know, work on a large title. Um, it's only the second console title that I worked on. Uh, and the previous one I worked on was uh, in, in Unity. Um, so I was kind of excited to work on a console game. Um, it's kind of difficult. 
Yeah, I know myself, that's all I play on as console games, and it's not because I don't like um, PC games. It's just I can't afford to do PC games right now because I'd have to like buy a whole rig and everything. So for me, you know, I'm just going to stick to my console right now. But, you know, maybe eventually I'll try some PC games. I think that the like the thing about affordability of consoles is, is interesting because I think that means that if you make a console game, you kind of reach a different audience than you do necessarily with with PC, you know, like a high-end gaming PC is thousands of dollars. Right. And you can get a, you know, a Black Friday deal on a Xbox or whatever for, you know, $300 or something like that. So it's kind of a different price category. And um, the other part of it is, which comes from me as a programmer, uh, it's a very fixed target. So if you're making a game for console, you know exactly what hardware they're going to be running the game on. You have very clear expectations for that. Which, from you know a player's perspective, it means that the rig is good for a longer time. You know, people aren't constantly chasing a new piece of hardware that came out and a graphics card or you know whatever. Um, so there's not like that same upgrade cycle for it. But it also means that as a developer, I can feel more confident in, in the product that I'm shipping because I know that you're going to run this on Xbox. Like I know that right. you're going to run this on a PS4. You're going to run this on you know. Switch or whatever, but like I have that exact piece of hardware that you're playing the game on. I have that sitting on my desk, and so I know exactly what's going to be like for PC. You know, you can say can whatever you lot, want. Right? Yeah, but you, Bill says developer, you can say whatever you want. You can say the minimum requirements are blah blah blah. You know, like this graphics card, this much memory, whatever. But you can bet you ask that somebody's going to try to run this on a literal potato. Like, they're going to shove that disc <laughs> right. right into a potato and hook up an HDMI cable, and they're just going to hope that it works, right? Like, you have no control over that. And, you know, from, from like, a marketing perspective or whatever, you could be like, well, you, you don't meet the minimum requirements, but I don't want people to have that experience, right? Like, I don't want people to, to, to have that. And I think the other part of it is that you... It's hard to set minimum requirements because it's, like... It's like it's complicated because it's like there's a lot of different factors, right? Like um, if you have a faster CPU but a slower GPU or whatever, like there are some settings you could turn down and some settings you could turn up, and like it's a very it's a very like balance it's like balancing act across the whole board. Um, and like as you your graphics quality goes up, you also need a faster hard drive to be able to stream the textures off of drive. Uh, fast enough to be able to show them on screen. Like, you know, there's a lot of different things that have, like, come together in a package. So you can't really express that very easily in um, minimum requirements. And so it's just, I don't know, like, it's a very complicated problem to solve. So consoles take away some of that guesswork. That's definitely something I didn't really think about before. But now that you say that, I mean, it definitely makes a lot of sense. And I'm sure that the problem is, you know, kind of the same thing like on the reverse side too where somebody could have you know a pc that they spent you know five grand or more on and they're expecting you know a certain level but the game isn't made to play at like the highest you know level graphics that are available on the market so like for them it might be like oh this you know this looks like crap because i have this like you know top end graphics card that you know no one else has and it doesn't look like it actually performs on that card yeah and it's like Part of it, too, is, like, do you want to make the download size for everyone, you know, 10 gig- gigs bigger just because you want to include a higher quality resolution that, like, uh, a quarter of a percent of your users will be able to show, right? Like, it's it's very, uh, 
Yeah, it's a complicated Right, that's uh, definitely question. challenging, yeah. Well, I guess I'm glad that I'm on console. I don't have to think about those things, but <laughs> unfortunately for you, you have to. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, it's it's not the end of the world, but it is it is a lot right. more complex. I think if I was going to ever be like, you know, and the other part of it is like, how much money do you want to make? Um, because the more platforms you support, the bigger your audience is, and the more money you can make. So um, it's it's not a simple like cut and dry thing. I, like as a programmer. Uh, my dream world would be to support a single console, not like even multiple consoles. Um, but then you're like artificially uh, like limiting your audience, which is, is a different problem. Well, I mean, now that you know Microsoft owns Undead Labs, I mean, you're almost in that boat where you know basically it's going to be on Xbox or PC now. So I mean, that was always the case. So. Right, but <laughs> I mean, I, I guess there was always a chance that you know, if, if Microsoft didn't buy Undead Labs, that I guess there was always you know a potential opportunity that would go somewhere else. But that That's does fair. happen at times. So, but in terms of State of Decay two, what would you say is your favorite aspect of the game, or what you know draws you into the game that um you really appreciate, <sighs> or even the first game, if you want to say something about the first game that you really enjoyed. Uh, it, it's just a complicated question because I think it's. It's hard for me to sometimes separate my love for the features that I worked on from, you know, my right, experience as a, as a player. And um, also, I think that a lot of the time, like the way I play the game is different from how um, our customers do. But, you know, I'm a big fan of, of the co-op, even though that's not necessarily how I uh, would play that game by myself. I play co-op most at the office, not so much at home. But I, I do like the co-op aspect of it because it kind of gives it uh, more like lighthearted and goofy feeling almost. Because um, it's kind of a serious game in some ways. Like it tries to kind of convey that post-apocalyptic feeling. And so, you know, playing with friends, it's more like messing around in the apocalypse kind of feeling. It feels more like uh, Shaun of the Dead, you know, than, than uh, right. <laughs> something more serious. Um I uh, I also really I really like the world art in our game. I really like the the environmental storytelling, the kind of little camps you'll find, and the little you know weird things on the walls, and, um, signs of civilization as it has decayed. You know, that's what really appeals to me. And I yeah, I definitely the, like that too. And I think the back to the topic we were talking about, mentioning earlier, in terms of letting people tell their own stories um you know that applies to kind of very gamey systems like um, our food consumption stuff you know that's very much like you has no there's no connection between how much food you see somebody physically eating and how much food is consumed in a day right like that's it's like a and it's not like you have three cans of food you have three units of food and so it's like it's kind of abstract so that's very gamey um but there's other aspects of the game that I think are are less gamey that still have a lot of that uh, player-driven storytelling to it, and um, it's the trait system, like how we do our character generation and what stories you can tell about a character. I love telling stories about my own characters, uh, and I love seeing people telling stories about their characters. I, uh, I think on our Discord there's a like uh, it's a channel that's like uh, share your stories, I believe it's called. Yeah. Which is the channel I created actually, um, because I was super excited about the character generator uh, results and seeing screenshots of like the com combinations of traits you got, since it's such a huge selection. 
they're such a they come together in such interesting ways that it's almost impossible to not look at that and be like, oh, this person was this kind of person, you know, like this is what this is what kind of character they are, you know, like this person was definitely a serial killer. They had a knife collection and they were super nocturnal and they used to work at a butcher shop, right? Like those three things doesn't don't mean that they were a serial killer, but you look at that and you're like, that's Dexter. Like I accidentally rolled Dexter, right? And so, right. I love that. Like that's a, that's a really exciting aspect. Um, I also worked on some of that, so that's part of why I'm saying it's hard for me to disconnect, like, kind of pull apart the things that I worked on and was excited to work on and the things that I enjoyed playing. But I think it really that makes does, sense, like, though. adds a lot to it. No, I definitely enjoy a lot of that, too. I mean, and I enjoy the whole skills system and, like, how there's these different specializations that you can kind of customize your character based on how you want. And I enjoy that a lot. And one of the other things I enjoy a lot, too, that I've mentioned on previous podcasts is I enjoy that a lot of the base management stuff that I know uh, Brian does a lot with. And I think that's really cool how he actually um, worked all that out, you know, with obviously the rest of the team and, you know, made it so you can actually customize your base to, OK, my base is self-sufficient now. You know, I'm getting everything I need and I don't have to worry anymore. Or if you don't want to do that, you know, you can make it so, OK, I always have to go find food rucksacks. I'm not making that food or there's different aspects of that that you can actually um, customize the way you want. Yeah, no, and I think uh, it's a, it's a testament to uh, my coworker Nico, who uh, implemented a lot of the, if not all, of the base management stuff, both from the UI side of things, which is a just a massive task. Like the UI for the base management is such a such a huge big UI, um, but also all the simulation aspects of it, and uh, the way he kind of set that out all up to to. Uh, enable Brian like he's so making the building blocks. Like he made a these really powerful building blocks that allow Brian to do so many interesting things with that system that I think it it really adds something. And I, I think that's <clears throat> part of it too, is that as we're working on like finding options for making the game more challenging, I think we're gonna we're gonna find that we're able to convince the the players to use some of these systems more. I think that like your decisions around base management and how you build the base are going to be more important uh, if the challenge is greater, right? If it's um, the difference between life and death, you know, whether or not you have a good or shitty base layout, right? Like then you're going to spend more time interacting with that system and thinking more about those decisions. Right. I definitely love that too. And I know in one of the previous patches that was released, there was actually a change that kind of incorporated some of that where, Basically, if you have high morale in your base now, then all the, you know, random events that you lose, oh, we knocked over a can of food, you lost one food today. All those random events shouldn't happen anymore when you have high morale. And I like that because it basically makes it, you know, so if you have high morale in your base, you shouldn't be losing this extra stuff. Yeah. And I think that's something that, like, this is going to happen naturally as as there are more challenging ways to play that you're going to find that these systems will have more impact and be more, um, you're going to have to engage with them more. Which I think is just good. It shows off more aspects of the No, I agree. And I, I really love all those aspects. And, you know, one of those aspects that we mentioned earlier is the new Zed Hunter stuff. And I'm definitely excited for all that. I mean, I know you said that you didn't have a lot of involvement in it, but um, what things did you, you know, work on directly if you did work on it? Uh, mostly just play tested. I just uh, gave it a spin, you know, uh, when they were asking for feedback, we were trying to figure out, like, you know, uh, how the consumables were going to work. Uh, the new consumables we've added, and you know, uh, testing how using a crossbow field and how it feels for multiplayer versus single player, and 
you know, like how what like what do you need to feel like you can aim properly? Kind of giving feedback and all that. Um, some in terms of just like advisory capacity, some like what is the scope of some of the work that we need to do, uh, helping guide the process so that we were you know sure that we could finish everything. Um, I'm sure, I did like some bug fixing and things like that, but I don't think I'm trying to remember, but I don't think there was anything that I kind of directly. Um, Directly was involved with. No, that's cool though that you actually got to, you know, provide your feedback still and, you know, help shape that. But like one of the things in that I'll ask you about specifically, um, say like the ZI consumable that, you know, makes it so you can see it in dark. Is something like that actually hard to do in terms of your role? I'm not sure who actually did it since you didn't do it, but um in terms of like actually programming that into the game, is that something that's a little bit more challenging because you have like l- different lighting options there where you have to change the whole lighting. So is that more difficult or is that, you know, something that's uh, fairly easy to. Yeah, no, I think it was actually uh, on the more challenging side of things because you're. Yeah, I thought it might be. So. We've spent a lot of time and, and especially from perspective of like our uh, lighting artist, uh, Matt, uh, we've spent a lot of time kind of on what the game looks like in different light lighting conditions different times of day. Um, I remember early in the process we had some, you know, like when we were making the game, we, we had some kind of lighting conditions that were pretty bad. Like it was really hard to, to navigate at night or things like that. And so we spent a lot of time speaking about getting to where we are right now. And then when you're in the way it kind of said, I, um, consumable works, you know, it, it does change the entire kind of visibility of the world, but you don't want it to look like it's daytime, you still want to make it feel like it's nighttime, and so then uh, you kind of have to, to adjust that. Um, from a technical perspective, there's, there's, there's definitely some challenges I think there, but I think that a lot of it too just came down to uh, Matt and, and how do we kind of sell like the experience, like we make it feel right, like it still feels like it's night, but you still feel like you have the visibility of, of uh, yeah, I mean, I obviously haven't tested out myself yet because we're recording this on a Thursday and it doesn't come out till tomorrow. But from what I've seen on the two streams that have showcased it, um, both the Microsoft Studio stream and the Undead Lab stream yesterday, uh, I think it looks great. And I think, you know, the way it was actually um, put together is awesome because it really makes it feel like you're having, you know, night vision goggles on. Oh, look, this glows in the dark now. And that's kind of how it feels. So I, I think it you know definitely uh, was done very well. Yeah, and I guess part of it, too, is that, you know, you're. Um, because of how they're themed, right? You kind of, you're kind of trying to sell, like, what does the world look like from the perspective of a zombie, right? Like, that's kind of... I did not like that too, yeah. It's not, like, it's not that explicit, like, it's not kind of exactly what it is, but it is, you know, it is a, it is a, an item that's crafted from, you know, literally parts of zombies, blood plague zombies, right? And so, when you call it Zedi, kind of part of the player experience, it's going to be like, what, is, what does it look like when a zombie looks out in the dark? So it really does a great job. So. No, I agree. And I'm definitely excited to try it out. You know, when people hear this, um, it's already going to have been out for a couple of days, but um, I'm excited to try it tomorrow for me. So I'm really looking forward to that. Can't wait to hear what you do. I'll definitely cover it. Yeah. I mean, uh, the episode after this, you know, the Saturday episode after this, I'll probably be talking something about Zed Hunter. You know, we'll, we'll see what topic I choose, but... <laughs> Yeah, it'll, it'll probably be something about it. So, <laughs> but um, kind of one of the uh, final questions I had for you is sort of what feedback is kind of most important to you as a programmer? Is it like you know just bug reports is important, or is it like um 
just general you know strategy feedback for you or what kind of feedback helps you the most in your job it's a good question i think it depends on what you're what i'm working on but um and, it, and i think that the way this did, this varies from studio to studio but especially in smaller studios uh everybody has a bit of responsibility for the design of the game um and you know and if you go to the the 500 person studio or whatever i think that that goes down your, your role is more narrower just kind of focus on the technical aspects of the channel and work, um, which is not something that appeals to me a lot. I really like being able to influence the design of the game and be able to participate in, in how we craft that experience. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, like if you're, when I read, I, I, I tend to read the State of the Key Reddit um, because I really like to see what the community is talking about. And um, I've, from a channel like that, where it's not so it's not that easy to have a back and forth conversation because you don't even know if that person's going to respond to your message. Or not. You can you can post a comment, but you don't know if you're ever going to come back. Um, I've I've both had bug reports where I was like, oh, dang, we need to fix that. That's real bad. And I've had you know feedback on experiences where people are like, this is working this way, and it's really frustrating, or you know, it doesn't you know, it doesn't do what I expect it to do, or it, like, it annoys me that it does what it does. And as well as like feature requests, we feel like, oh, I wish I could do this thing. Um, so all, all three of those are very helpful. But like the first one is that's a technical problem. That's like it's very cut and dry whether or not that is doing what it's expected to do. And then there's right. like the question of uh, of a frustrating experience, and you're like, okay, there's something wrong with the design here. You know, I think for the first for bug reports, I can most of the time just go in and fix it myself. Uh, not most of the time, but. A lot of the time, I can just go in and fix it myself without needing to talk to necessarily anyone else. But when you're talking about more things that are like the experience is frustrating, and we have to talk about like how do we want to fix that. You know, I might want to talk to a UX, like a user interaction uh, specialist, or I want to talk to a, a person in QA who spends a lot of time playing a game, or I want to talk to a designer about like how do we most best address this. And then there's the feature request side of things, which is harder, I think, because feature requests tend to be <laughs> um, less grounded in reality, I guess, is the right. <laughs> is, a, is a way to I phrase it. I can that, yeah. <laughs> uh, people have a lot of pie in the sky ideas that I I I really appreciate reading it. I think it's really exciting to see how much people care about our game um, and how much they want to be a part of of helping that game succeed and, and be the best it can be. Um, but they don't have well, a lot of people don't have a good understanding of the production process of a video game. And, what's involved in making certain things. Um, but there was definitely, I saw a Reddit post, and if, if it ends up actually shipping, I'll, I'll, I'll respond to that person on Reddit. But I saw a Reddit post about somebody who was asking, like, they had, like, an idea for a game. And I read it, and I was like, I don't think we're ever going to make that game. Like, it's not going to happen. But I think that this particular mechanic would be a really interesting way to uh, increase the difficulty in the game. And so that's currently on one of our uh, tracking boards as like, here is a, here's an idea for how to um, increase the difficulty of the game. And it's, you know, being considered as one of the tools we might use to, to do that. Um, and so, you know, if that, like, that's, that was a great idea that I read and I was just like, oh my gosh, that is so cool. Like that, I really want that to be a part of our game. It will not be a game mode like you're suggesting because that's just not, you know, it's not, doesn't have enough game to it, like it doesn't actually change the game in significant enough ways, but it does 
you know, make the game more challenging and interesting. And I would love to like to do. I'm very specifically not saying what it is because I don't want to, you know, right? <laughs> obviously, yeah. Reveal anything. <laughs> I understand that. But but if it does ship, I made a note of that person's Reddit comment in a, in a text document, and I'm going to go to Reddit. I'm going to post a comment on there and be like, "Hey, you know, you suggested this thing. Uh, we did some variant of this, and it's coming out in this update." Um, because it's it's great to see that kind of enthusiasm and that kind of, and I want to encourage people to be excited about our game, just like we are. No, that's really cool though, and I definitely appreciate that as well. But I mean, that's you know basically all the questions I had for you. Unless you have anything you know else about programming you want to mention real quick. Yeah, I mean, uh, I do. I do want to encourage anyone who's listening to to consider a career as a programmer, um, especially in the games industry, uh, especially if you're not a white dude. Uh, <laughs> I think that uh, you know, uh, it's it's really. I, I think of games as kind of like the most most viscerally engaging format of entertainment that we have, right? Um, because of the interactive nature of video games, it's just so... It just has this hook uh, for people to have such extremely heartfelt reactions to it. And it could be, you know, everything from, like, you throwing your controller at the wall because you're playing Call of Duty, some guy was spawn camping you or whatever. It's not necessarily a good uh, experience that you want to encourage in your game, but it, the truth is that it was a game that was able to provoke that reaction for me, which is a huge spectrum. Like, I don't think anyone has ever seen a movie, or if, if maybe people have, but it happens so frequently. I've never seen, you know, people talk about how they threw the DVD at the wall after they watched a movie, right? Like, that's not a thing that happened. And so I think that being able to be a part of that process from whatever perspective, you know, whatever your talents are, is so rewarding because you, you know, yes, there's a chance that you, people are going to yell at you on the internet and call you names. Um, but then you also have communities like State of the K2 subreddit where people have really passionate feelings about the game, where they talk about the things they love about it and what they wish was better. And it's all, you know, um, well, it's mostly all done in, in the spirit of, you know, affection and passion about that product. I feel really excited and lucky to be able to be a part of that. Absolutely, and I definitely appreciate all the work that you do and everyone else at Undead Labs as well. So, you know, thank you for coming on, and I will definitely put your information in the show notes. Um, I believe your Twitter is JurgenPT, so I'll put that in the show notes. And if people want to contact me, then you might already know how to do it. But if not, um, basically, at Blaze Experience, that is going to be capital B-L-A-I-S-E, capital X-P-E-R-I-E-N-C-E. If you want to email me, it's theblazeexperience at gmail.com. And I also have my Discord, YouTube, and Facebook group. So that'll all be in the show notes as well if you want to check that out. But Jurgen, I definitely thank you for coming on with me today. And is there any other ways that people can contact you besides Twitter? Or do you want them to contact you on Twitter? Um, I think Twitter is the best way. You know, if, we, if you need to have a long conversation, I can uh, send you an email address. But yeah, just send me a direct message or an, uh, a tweet at uh, J-O-R-G-E-N-P-T. Uh, and I know you have your uh, Twitch as well. I don't know how often you're going to be streaming, but, you know, if people want to check you out on Twitch, I'll put that on there as well. Perfect. Thank you so much. And for anyone that wants to check out the podcast, um, basically we're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Blueberry, Podbean, and many of the directories. So definitely check us out. You know, give us a review. And I really appreciate everyone checking us out for this special 50th episode. So 
thank you once again, Jurgen, for coming on. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And, uh, you know, thank you for everyone who's listening. Absolutely. And, you know, thank you to the listeners. We really appreciate it. So thank you once again for listening to The Blaze Experience.